Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A bloody fingerprint is like the holy grail of evidence. If the person claims I've never been in that house, it's going to be hard to explain how your fingerprint is in blood at a crime scene inside this house. I'm Yardley. And I'm Zibby. And we're fascinated by true crime. So we invited our friends, detectives Dan and Dave, to sit down with us and share their most interesting cases. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins. And we're detectives in small town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes. And together, we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, locations, and certain details of these cases have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. Emma was a 24-year-old female described by her friends as being happy, eccentric, and an animal lover. She worked as a short-order cook at a local restaurant in town and had recently become engaged to her fiancé, Rusty. Emma rented a room in a home belonging to her friend, Bill, who was a long-haul trucker and often out of town for work. Not long after Emma moved in, and much to her displeasure, Bill began allowing his cousin Doug to stay in the detached garage behind his house. Doug was a 30-year-old male with a heavy methamphetamine habit. He'd been kicked out of his mother's home because his brother, who also lived with their mom, had filed a restraining order against him due to a fight the two brothers had gotten into. In addition to his brother's restraining order, Doug had several other criminal charges pending against him for physical and sexual assault. Though Doug wasn't ever allowed into the main house where Emma was living, she was wary of him and uncomfortable with the steady stream of sketchy visitors he had coming and going at all hours. Emma finally voiced her concerns to Bill, but he was on the road at the time and didn't take any action. He was hoping the situation would simply resolve itself since his cousin was only staying in the garage temporarily. Things did get resolved, but in a far more violent and tragic way than anyone could have imagined. The basic timeline of the 48 hours leading to the discovery of Emma's body is as follows. It was Sunday in early July 2015. 
At 1.42 p.m., Emma clocked in for her shift at the restaurant where she worked. Exactly eight hours later, she clocked out and headed to her sister's house. At 10.30 p.m. that same night, Doug's mother dropped him off at the garage on Bill's property. The two had been out playing horseshoes earlier. Doug was apparently high on meth at the time. At 12.14 a.m. that same night, Walmart security cameras recorded Emma and her sister Kelly entering the store. They bought cigarettes and left 15 minutes later. Emma dropped Kelly off at her home and returned to the place she was renting from Bill. The next day, Monday, neither Emma's friends nor family heard from her and were beginning to worry. Monday night, Emma was supposed to pick up her friend Flora from work, but she was a no-show. On Tuesday, 48 hours after the Walmart security cameras had recorded Emma and Kelly leaving the parking lot, Emma's mother, Cynthia, called the police department to say she was concerned that she couldn't reach her daughter. Shortly after making that call, Cynthia and Kelly drive to Bill's house to check on Emma. At 12.57 a.m., the two women discover Emma's dead body inside the house. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Glad to be here. And Detective Dave. Good morning. As well as special guests, Detective Kyle. Hello, glad to be here. And Detective George. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, Kyle, why don't you tell us how you got involved in this case? I received the call and responded to the location of the homicide. When you went inside the house, what did you find? The whole house is ransacked because everything started as a burglary. Everything is ransacked. Everything's gone through every room. Stuff's laying all over the place. And it looks like someone had just dug through everything and took anything that was valuable or what they thought was valuable. Immediately as you walk in, the front door is the living room. And in the middle of the living room is a pool of blood on the carpet. Also, there's two bedrooms in the back of the house. One is Emma's. And one is Bill, which is Doug's cousin. And on the way to those two rooms in the hallway, there's a kind of a bloody smear on one of the door frames. And then as you head into Emma's room, there's another bloody smear with an obvious handprint. You know, several fingers looks like most of a handprint. As you go into Emma's room, she is laying on her back, kind of diagonal in the bed. She's got no clothes on except for a shirt that's pulled up to about her neck above her breasts. And she's got a blanket covering most of her. As you pull off the blanket, she has a bottle of lubricum lotion next to her face. And then she's got a large dildo that had two screws out the back of it, uh, which was kind of confusing to us at the time. It ended up being a simple answer, but staged kind of pointing toward her mouth so she's laying on her back her legs are completely spread dildo next to her face lubriderm next to her face oh and she also has bruising on her neck but as we pull the blanket down further she is um blood in her crotch and um, anal area and it's obvious that she's been sexually abused somehow and in the autopsy later she was much more sexually abused than we we could originally see there at the scene. That's really gruesome. That's a gruesome thing to come across. I remember hearing that Doug's mom and his friend Rob showed up at the house the next morning. Why? 
Doug's mom's worried about Doug, obviously, because he's come up missing and he was living in the backyard of this house, which they know something happened and they don't know what happened. So I sit down with Rob and he tells me that he was hanging out with Doug in the garage um, the night before. The garage is a detached garage at the back of the residence. And he said they were using meth. He actually describes Doug as using more meth than anyone ever should, is his words. My God, I don't even know what state. Because I don't know what those measurements are like, like more meth than anyone should ever use. I'm like, like, aren't you never supposed to? That's sort of the point, isn't it? You should never use meth. So that seems like a lot, a lot. Our yardstick is probably not as long as a meth user's yardstick who's been using his whole life. So for him to say that it was more meth than anyone should was a lot more than anyone ever should. They also drank a, a fifth of vodka together. They shared it. At some point in the night, Doug tells Rob, hey, I'm going to go rob this bitch. Oh, my. Rob tells him, nah, don't do that. I don't think this should happen. He tries to talk him out of it. And and who is he talking about, Rob, this bitch? He's talking about Emma, who lives in the house. And Emma and Doug do not like each other. Um, Do we know why? Kind of. Emma doesn't want Doug to live there. And Doug just doesn't like her because she doesn't want him to live there. And he's kind of forced into living there because his cousin is the owner of the main residence. He got kicked out of his house because he beat up his brother and his brother got a restraining order. So he had nowhere else to go. He's a lifetime loser who doesn't have his own place. And he's kind of forced into living in his cousin's garage. And in the garage, there's a little pop-up tent that he's staying in. And Wow. Yeah. So I'm going to rob this bitch. Rob tries to talk him out of it. He says Doug's as high as he's ever seen anybody coupled with drunk because he's drinking half a bottle of vodka. And he grabs a handful of tools that were in this garage, and he starts prying on the back door. So Rob was not able to talk Doug out of going to rob Emma. No, and I'm... Did he want to? I'm not sure, you know, how much he actually tried talking about him. He probably did. But at the same time, I mean... Sure, they're both high as... Totally. He's as high and drunk as Doug was. So Rob watches Doug basically pry open the back door of this house. He goes in. He's in there a long time. He says he's piling stuff up at the back door. At one point, he comes out and shows Rob a gun and says, hey, dude, look at this. Rob says several times he walks up to the back door and is like, Doug, get out of here. Doug, stop. Come on, Doug. You're going to get caught. Get out of here. You're done. You've done it enough. A long time passes. And Emma's not home, obviously. No, nobody's home. She's at work. Nobody's home. And Doug's cousin is a long-haul truck driver. He's actually gone way out of state. Anyway, Rob says he's not going to talk him out of it. He's just sitting in the garage, just waiting for him to get done. At one point, he hears a car pull into the driveway. So Rob beats feet up to the back door that had been pried open and yells, Doug, get out of here. She's here. Get out of here. Get out of here. And Doug doesn't listen. He looks at him. He gives him like the finger to the lips, like the shush uh, motion. And he gets behind the hinges of the door where the door will open and conceal him when the door does open. Rob says, I want nothing to do with what's going to happen right now. So Rob, not wanting to get in trouble, gets on his bike and leaves. So Rob takes off. Doug's still in the house. Emma's come home. Yeah. So he leaves and he doesn't know what happened after that. His original story is a little different. He says he came back sometime later and heard nothing inside the house. He said he waited around for a while and then went back home. His final story, I talked to this guy over the course of a year, many, many times, and his story ended up he never came back until the next morning. But when he does finally come back, Emma's car is gone, and he hears nothing inside the house. So that's what Rob told you the morning he shows up at the crime scene with Doug's mom. Correct. 
Yeah. And what did Doug's mom have to say? Doug's mom is concerned that her son is missing, but she's also concerned that he did something he shouldn't have because she knows her son. And he's residing where obviously there's a crime scene that she's pulled up to. And I'm sure she already knows her son pretty well. A big crime scene. And a big crime scene. And he's the one common thread here is that he's often associated with crime. There's a crime scene at his house, and he's the only one who's unaccounted for. Correct. And Doug's past is pretty severe. So you know that the guy who was living in the garage was there the night prior and now is missing. Correct. You know there's a dead body in the house. You know that... The car belonging to the dead body, Emma, is missing. Correct. You know that the mother of Doug, the guy who was living in the back of the house, is concerned that he may have done something bad. And you know, based on Doug's friend's account, that Doug was actually in the house the night before, in the main house, where I believe he wasn't allowed to go. Is that correct? He was actually specifically told not to go in the house because his own cousin also knows him. So... His own cousin doesn't want him to be anywhere near the inside of his house. So we already have a pretty gnarly picture of Doug, just based on a few family members and friends of his. Do you have any other suspects at this point? At this point, we've got a good idea who did this. But at the same time, we can't put all our eggs in that basket because there's lots of people around, you know, because Rob was there. Rob also talks about another guy who lives across the street that had been in and out throughout the night. He was there. We got neighbors who are also less than law-abiding citizens, also on the same street. And this is a short street. It's like five or six houses long. Uh, So we can't just say that it's Doug, but we have a pretty good idea. And he's our main target at that point. So we basically go through the whole house, take all the evidence we can find. We actually had um, the state crime lab come in and they have a lot of forensic analysis stuff. They can take better fingerprints than we can, a lot more swabs. They have a lot more tools than we do. And uh, that's exactly what they did. They came in and took all the biological evidence, fingerprints. At the same time, our department's taking evidence for the burglary and non-biological stuff, stuff that we can just retrieve and don't have to analyze quite the same as they do or preserve for the analysis. As they do roll her body, we notice there's also a lot of blood underneath her head which we didn't completely understand at the time. Her body is retrieved and it goes to the morgue at the hospital for autopsy. And then does that autopsy reveal how she was killed? Yeah, the diagnosis, because she had a lot of different stuff done to her, is homicidal violence. That is our medical examiner's words for it. She had two perfect circles, probably the size of a 50 cent piece in the top of her head that had buried her cranium, um, her skull, into her brain. She also had her hyoid bone and her neck broken, which would lead us to think that she was also strangled or choked. And then they also had tons of damage to her vagina and anus from obvious sexual penetration of some sort. And the ME, our medical examiner, had never seen anything like it, um, the amount of damage that was done. And what was the, what created the two holes in the top of her skull? Uh, it ended up, there was a hammer in the middle of the living room, so we expected it to be a hammer at that time, and that's essentially what it ended up being. What was the dildo with the two screws about? That ended up being what she was penetrated with. And the other thing to touch on the medical examiner's autopsy is he could tell that she was alive during all that too because of the hemorrhaging and her heart was still pumping during the time that she was being penetrated by this dildo. That's unbelievable. That's horrifying. And what are the screws in the dildo? 
screws in a dildo seem unusual? So the base of the dildo had been cut off, and there's screws in the back of it, which makes kind of no sense to us. So we ended up talking to Doug's cousin about this dildo, and he knew exactly what it was. He said, my uncle used to live with me, and he takes the door handle of the bathroom door off and screwed it on there. So that was our door handle to the bathroom for years. Wow. Which, after he said that, made sense with the, the angle it had been cut and the screws. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024, and Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So what's your next step? You, you know pretty much who it is, but now you also have all these sketchy characters who live in the neighborhood. I'm assuming you have to eliminate them. Absolutely. You hit on 
one of the more important things in a homicide investigation is not only do we have to prove that this person did it, but we have to disprove or prove why all these other people didn't do it because you know, defense investigators and defense attorneys are going to find holes and, well, what about this guy or what about this? And if we don't disprove those things along the way, then it could be a major problem and let some guy out that shouldn't be out in public. So who'd you have to disprove? We actually started doing searches of the types of characters that live in that neighborhood. And we find multiple sex offenders that live within 100 yards of that residence. Uh, It's kind of a little pocket neighborhood close to downtown, but it's kind of odd that we would have that kind of concentration of sex offenders that live nearby. Uh, of course, we've got the people that witness Doug being inside the house. We've got another guy who keeps coming and going from the property. So the list turns out to be pretty big. And the main suspect originally the neighbors tell us about is a guy named BB. It's not Doug. BB is a guy that lives. So the backyard of the property backs up to kind of like a, some businesses and he lives in a camp. He's a transient. He lives in a camp behind the property in between the businesses and the property we're talking about. He uh, ended up getting a fight with Doug the night before, and the neighbors immediately think, this BB is a bad guy. So we run BB, and he's also a sex offender. Oh, my. Yeah. So it took us forever to find BB, actually. We know where he lives, but he is elusive, and he's wanted, so he doesn't want the cops to find him, not because he murdered Emma, but because he's wanted. So how did you find him if he's trying to hide from the police and he's homeless? We had information of a general area of where he was living. And we checked that area. He was not there. We ended up developing some information that he was about 100 feet away. Like in a park or something? No, he was in the bushes. Oh. So when we actually found him in his camp, he's buried probably 10 to 15 feet in blackberry briars. It's unbelievable that he went that deep. Somebody with me saw his clothing and they're like, come out. And we basically have to drag him out of these blackberry briars and he's cut from head to toe. And yeah. From the thorns? Yeah. (laughs) This is so strange. (laughs) What's he wanted for? I don't even remember. Theft, drugs, something. Failure to appear. Standard. Yeah. Something. Nothing. Pretty minor. Nothing extraordinary at all. Yeah. And then what about this guy that you mentioned who lived across the street and had been coming in and out that same night? Yeah, so he's in and out all night also. And sure enough, he's a sex offender, which just guides us to another problem. It might be this guy. And if it's not, the defense will at least lean on, hey, Magoo could be him also. So, oh, his name's Magoo. It is. Um, I'm assuming you tracked Magoo down um, and he lived in an actual apartment, not a... Bush. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and what did he have to say? Magoo is not a bright individual. He's actually probably borderline mentally challenged, whether it's caused from drugs or with whether he was born with it. I'm not certain. But he's not an easy person to talk to because his perception is different than yours and mine. Originally, Magoo tells us that he's in and out all night and He may or may not have heard something, but he stays home, doesn't have any part of it. Well, the paper talks to him the next day, and his story has grown tenfold. And he's looking across the street, and he sees somebody get hit inside the residence. So he goes over there and looks through a window. You know, he sees people shuffling, but he doesn't have any definitive what happened. But he basically describes Doug as killing Emma and hearing screaming. So he tells the paper that. So when we see it out in the paper, it's like, we got to go talk to this guy again. And we do just that. And 
his story kind of morphs again a little bit, but it's similar. He basically stays across the street this time and he hears a scream and he sees maybe Doug punch Emma, something along those lines and the door shut. And that's kind of it. Does this make him seem super suspicious or are you taking it as an embellishment that keeps changing because of everybody wants to be a part of something big. It could be taken either way. And um, I didn't think that I thought it was an embellishment. I thought he wants to be part of this. He wants to tell a story to the paper and he wants people to know that he was involved, which seems kind of odd. I know, but I think that's where his head was. Uh, We actually look into his story and the window he says that he looked into, he's about six inches shorter than I am. And this window is about 12 inches over my head and there's nothing to stand on. So for him to stand there and watch this happen is impossible. Okay, so Magoo is... Magoo Magoo. is is Magoo. (laughs) And Doug is still missing because you've not yet found him. No, that was number one priority and we had been on it. We were all over the county putting out flyers, campgrounds, going every which way up into the mountains uh, on the rural areas outside of our town. We had information he was a camper and a hunter. Right. So we're we're trying to cover as wide a swath of area as possible, thinking that he's probably not hanging out in the same town where this happened. What we're looking for is the car. You figure he has Emma's car. Right. And so that was part of the flyer is the car was prominently displayed on this flyer, hoping that some tip from the public gets us onto the trail so we can find out where Doug is. If we find the car, we're going to find whoever left with it. Had you done any DNA testing? Because I'm assuming his DNA was all over the garage. She's been autopsied. Have you checked for his DNA on her? I can speak to the DNA issue. It's not like CSI on TV where we have a magic DNA machine that spits it it out. We can submit DNA evidence. Uh, I'm never going to get that back within a day or two days, or even three days. It takes weeks to get DNA evidence back, even if we put a rush on it. It's just the process doesn't work like it does on TV. That seems like a glitch in the system. Yes, a glitch, and also terribly misleading for the general public who watch TV and then expect DNA results to just be ordered up like Chinese takeout. It it just must make your job so much harder. It does make it harder, and I think it's frustrating for victims, but the fact is there's such a huge backlog in our labs. There's so many samples and so few technicians to test all those samples. But with that being said, in this case, which this never happens, um, the same day that the two guys are out there. The two crime lab guys. Yeah. They call us later that evening and say, hey, I checked that fingerprint on the door, and that comes back to Doug. And that's in blood, And that's in a fingerprint in blood, which we very, very, very rarely get that kind of return. These these two guys who came out that day were just awesome. They did a great job, and we've never got that kind of service. Uh, But it worked out that day because the bloody fingerprint on Emma's doorframe actually came back to Doug. Because if it had just been a fingerprint, you could only really say that, well, he was definitely in the house, maybe burglarizing, maybe not murdering. I mean, you kind of know, but the fact that it was bloody... Correct. Seems like a big deal. A bloody fingerprint is like the holy grail of evidence. Right. And that's important stuff for later on when you get to a suspect interview. If the person claims, I've never been in that house, it's going to be hard to explain how your fingerprint is in blood at a crime scene inside this house. So it's, it's stuff that we can use to confront suspects later on. It's not always about getting a confession. Sometimes it's more about disproving a lie. 
if somebody isn't willing to give you 100% of the truth, if they lie to you, at least if you could disprove that, every little bit counts when you have to go to a trial later to prove that. That's well said. Um, how long does it take you to find Doug, and how does that happen? We technically didn't find him. Another agency did, which is about an hour away. A rural sheriff who is in charge of like real rural forest property areas, and uh, he's driving through an area where there's very few houses, a very sparse area. And the car is parked out by the street at a house that's got a, a real long driveway, quarter mile driveway, which is odd. Why would you park at the street when you have a quarter mile driveway? So he runs the plate and it comes back as stolen. They're immediately getting on the phone with us and we're sending a team down south to go check it out. At this point, was Doug's face all over the news as well? Yeah, we had a flyer out to the news with the car, um, his picture, and all the info we had and basically just said he's wanted, we need him. George, were you one of those that went down? Yeah, I was lucky enough um, to be out and about that day myself and three other detectives were out in unmarked cars checking campgrounds and uh, rural properties within our own county. You know, we get information a lot of times that, you know, if somebody's on the run, they're going to go to a spot they've been to before. They may have camped at before, uh, lived nearby. So we split up in a couple of different cars and went driving around uh, checking our local area camping spots. And we were probably out and about for a couple hours that day when I got a call from Kyle saying he had some information that the vehicle stolen from the victim was parked at the uh, top of a driveway in a neighboring county about an hour or so away from here. Myself and three other detectives, I'd say literally raced down the interstate to get down to that county. And we're in unmarked cars and we're going pretty darn fast down to an area thinking there's a good possibility our suspect's nearby. You know, not only is this car dumped in a rural area, but there's a lot of spots nearby for somebody to hide out, including a house at the end of this driveway that we try to figure out who's living at this house and what's going on there. Were the residents of or owners of that house connected to him at all? They were not connected to him. They happened to be out of town and the house was empty. So myself, three other guys get there and the neighboring county has a SWAT team to get deployed to this property so we can start checking the area as well as the house. Initially, our thought was he was going to be uh, at the house in this property. So we surround the house from a pretty good distance to establish a perimeter that if he is nearby and takes off running, uh, we're able to capture him. We make a plan to approach the house and check it out and enter it. And it's a pretty big house. And it takes us a while to not only approach the house safely, to check the driveway and bushes and trees and everything nearby, but then uh, we got to the point where we're entering the house and checking inside floor by floor looking for this guy. Anything? Nothing in the house at all. Really? Um, no. Didn't appear any forced entry and no indication that he's been inside the house. Imagine being those owners coming back, finding out <laughs> that your house was possibly a hideout for a wanted murderer. That would be unsettling. And we were able to reach them by phone um, to kind of keep them apprised of what was going on. And they were more than happy to cooperate and let us search. Um, they even told you where the key was, right? They did. Yeah. Oh, so you didn't have to break in? No. Now, while you were at the house, was there any other team in the area looking around? Or now you guys have to go, okay, what next? It's exactly what it was, was, okay, what next? Where else, as we look around the area, where else would a guy go? So it's a pretty big chunk of rural property and there's a nearby river, probably a few hundred yards away from the house. So we start literally just splitting up teams, start splitting up and checking the areas around. Myself and another officer who's a uh, canine officer decide we're gonna go check along down by the river. River's a pretty common place to camp. You can clean up, cool down in the middle of the summer. 
So uh, we make our way down to this river, and fortunately, it being summer, the river is not really high. It's just a small offshoot of the main river, so we're able to walk through the water at a probably uh, foot-high, 18-inch high water and along the uh, riverbank. How many of you? Just me and a canine officer in this particular area. So you, a canine, and a canine officer. Correct. We worked in teams of two. We were literally, there was probably uh, 20 to 30 officers in the area. Once the SWAT team started leaving the house, there was probably six, seven groups of two walking around the area. So I met up with the canine officer and his dog. And my role initially when you're working with a canine officer is basically to cover the officer. I worked with this guy before and his job is to watch what the dog reacts to. That dog is trying to pick up a scent and locate this guy. So the canine handler, he's watching his dog, looking for the dog to react and where he's, where the dog's going. That officer is not looking in the bushes, looking in the trees, looking in the water for a suspect. So my job is to be his eyes and cover him. Should somebody come out and try to harm him, I'm responsible for keeping him safe while he's watching his dog. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. We're assuming now that Doug is armed and dangerous. We are assuming that. He reportedly was armed with a handgun. At the very least, he's a homicide suspect. We're on heightened alert knowing that, you know, anytime somebody is a suspect in a violent crime, they're going to be uh, a little more paranoid, a little more defensive, whether they hop out of the bushes with a knife or take off running or are armed with a gun. There are guns outstanding from the house, actually. That's right. So we're pretty oh. certain he does have guns. Right. So we're walking along the river, and we probably went uh, probably a couple hundred yards down the river. And as I'm just looking side to side in the bushes and the trees for any kind of sign of a campsite, not really knowing if we're going to find Doug or not, I look up to my left and I see a guy up the riverbank, probably 25 feet up the riverbank, hiding in some bushes by a tree. I'm carrying a rifle at that point. Um, I'm on the SWAT team, so I'm able to bring a rifle with me when I go places. And in a rural setting, it's awfully handy to have a rifle in case you have to engage somebody from long distance. This, unfortunately, or fortunately, wasn't a long distance. So I immediately uh, raise my rifle up and yell at the guy to show me your hands. I initially didn't recognize if this was Doug or not. It looked similar to him. However, he's wearing all kinds of clothes and a hood. And I yell at him, show me your hands. And he reacts to me, I've got a gun right here. And as I'm looking at him, there's a, a gun at his feet. And... He's not exactly reaching for it, but his hands are up in front of him as if he could pretty quickly get to that gun. So my objective is to get to him before he's able to reach for that gun and do something, whether to himself, to me, or to the canine officer. So I rush up on him, push him down to the ground, away from the gun, kick the gun aside, and handcuff him. Straight out of a movie. Seriously. What does rush up on him mean? So do you move forward with a gun or do you, I mean, how does this? I have the rifle in my hands. It's, uh, I have a sling on it, so it's slung around my neck. So my whole point was to rush up to him as quick as I could, run up this hill and reach him before he has a chance to grab the gun. 
he's sitting down on the hill and his hands are on his lap, kind of on his legs. So he holds his hands up off of his lap and rests them right there on his legs. So I literally, as I'm holding the gun, just run up the hill and get to him. And as I reach him with one hand, push him to the ground, the other hand, hold my rifle and sling it to my side. So it's uh, not within his reach. And when you're advancing on him, you still... The rifle's pointed the down rifles, the whole time. You're not, yeah, it's not down by your side. You're not running with it. You're you it's, still got a beat on him. It's pointed at him the whole time until I literally am face-to-face with him. And I sling it down to the side as I'm pushing him down to the ground and then reach for my handcuffs to handcuff him. At what point did you realize it was Doug? I asked him, are you Doug? And he said yes. It was pretty surreal that he was going to identify himself right away who he was. A lot of times people aren't going to talk to you at all or tell you who they are. So as I got close enough to him, I recognized him. Fortunately, working in a small town, you have the opportunity to arrest a lot of people time and time again. And I had actually had a couple run-ins with Doug over the years. It had been three or four years since last time I'd seen him. But Kyle prepared the flyer. When it was the most recent mugshot looked like, it's pretty easy once you get close enough to recognize him. He had been in the bushes kind of hiding behind a tree when we first saw him, so I couldn't really see his face. And initially when I saw him, it was just as likely he could have been a transient camping in the woods. But as I ran up and recognized him and called out to him, are you Doug? Uh, He immediately answered that he was. After I hook him up and take him into custody, I advise him of the Miranda rights so I can actually at least get him talking and chat him up a little bit. I confirmed, are you Doug? And he confirms that with his date of birth and all that stuff to make sure I got the right person. And he says, thank you, you saved my life. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I was gonna I was gonna kill myself down here. I don't know the details about the case that Kyle knows. I had been away for a couple of days. I got called in to come out and help look for him. So I don't know the details of the homicide enough to where I need to interrogate Doug. So I just say, What do you mean? Why do you want to kill yourself? And he says things like, I did a terrible thing. I killed her and I deserve to die. Didn't he say he was a monster or something? Yeah, like he that? did. He yeah. said, I'm a monster, I deserve to die. Mm-hmm. And uh he said, I killed Emma. And You know, it's always nice when we have a prime suspect to arrest him and have some evidence. But when they make statements like that, it helps you know that, all right, we're doing the right thing. We definitely got the right guy and just keep him talking. We had a long walk back up to our cars, up the riverbank, through the field. Was he high as well? Do you know? I don't think he was high. I can smell beer on him, but I don't even think he was really drunk. I think he had just been going one beer after another. Did he keep talking as you made your way back to the car and then back to the station? He kept talking all the way up to the car, um, offered him a cigarette to let him smoke. I certainly don't smoke, but I know smoking helps people cope sometimes with stress. A lot of times over the years, I've been able to just offer somebody a cigarette, it calms them down, and it makes people comfortable talking to you. And my goal was to make him comfortable enough to talk to the next officer that was going to sit down and interrogate him about this case because I didn't have the information to do that. So I just tried to keep a rapport with him. We were able to tie some of the belongings that he had with him on the riverbank to the burglary at Emma's house. Correct. He had a laptop down there. There were several more items in the car. The gun, a gun that was taken from Bill's house. I mean, probably to trade for drugs, I'm guessing. I'm sure that was the initial thought. And then as he started thinking about what he had done, he ends up just drinking himself into a stupor at the bottom of a riverbed and beds down for a period of time. So you found the guy. He's been arrested. Now, where's the family in all this? Had you spoken to her fiancé? I can't imagine what it's like to be them. Yeah, we had spoken with the fiancé several times. Right now, our priority is Doug at this point. So interviewing Doug, getting Doug 
to a place that we can talk to him and get his side of the story is priority number one. Also, going through the scene there where Doug was, pulling any evidence that we can from where Doug was bedded down all the way to his car and anywhere else he could have been and getting the car to a place that we can process it also. Yeah. So again, in the movies, it's always the fiance or the family who's a suspect. That's our first thought. Yeah. When we talked to her fiance initially, he was a suspect. Absolutely. Really? And that's, that's real life. It usually is someone that's really close to him. And this one, they were close in proximity, but weren't necessarily close emotionally or by family or anything. So did Emma's fiance have an alibi? Yeah, he was actually a firefighter, a forest firefighter, and he was out of town. Wow. Hmm. So what was the formal charge here? It was murder. Aggravated um, murder? Aggravated murder, along with all the sexual charges, too. Did this go to trial? It did not go to trial. No. It didn't. Why? It was going to go to trial because the state was going for the death penalty, um, rightfully so. He wanted life without parole. That was what his defense team wanted. They were going for 25 years was their first, like, hey, will you give him 25 years? would be a standard life charge, murder charge. But we weren't going to ever go off of life without parole. We were going to go for death penalty. But his defense ended up being that he was mentally challenged or mentally retarded is actually the term they use in the state still. And that term is in a really gray area because what is that? Doug isn't mentally retarded in the sense that you would you would think. But through school, he actually showed that he had an IQ around 70. And in our state, IQ of 70 or below is when you can start getting disability for being mentally handicapped. So that's where it puts him in the gray area. And all these decisions he made knowing what he was doing. In my opinion, he is not mentally challenged. He's not mentally retarded. He is stupid, whether that's by choice, lack of effort through school. Drug abuse. Drug abuse. That's what we were willing to argue. And that's what we were going in. And we did a lot of work to actually defeat that defense. But He read a lot of books in, in custody. He did. He, he was and on. I remember us looking him up. Hey, what, what kind of stuff is this guy reading? And he's reading some pretty advanced material. For him to be able to absorb that kind of information and then at the same time claim that he's got these developmental disabilities, they're, they don't mix. They're contradictory. Including the Bible. He constantly read the Bible and would cite scripture to his mother when she'd come to visit and other things. And Anyone who's ever read the Bible, is it's a tough book to read. It's not easy to interpret and comprehend, and he could do that, which to me screams this defense is absurd. But at the end of the day, we had a psychologist on our team who was just awesome. She did a great job, and uh, it's it's much more complex than is he retarded or is he not or what's his IQ. There's so many things that go into it that's way above my head, but a lot of it comes down to adaptive functioning, and uh, he, sure, he's low on the scale, But in her opinion, he was not mentally challenged, but we had a fight on our hands and it would have been really tough. And correct me if I'm wrong, Kyle, but you didn't just rely on the psychologist. You spent weeks, months talking to pretty much any and every person that Doug grew up with, relative. I mean, that's the interesting thing about these cases is it doesn't end when you put the handcuffs on somebody and put them in jail. You know, the lead investigator and sometimes other investigators are able to help spend a lot of time afterwards trying to sort out alibis, explanations, history about a person, their ex-girlfriends, their roommates, their parents, reading every police report this guy's ever been in, trying to determine what his mental state was. And I know firsthand Kyle did a lot of that after the fact work leading up to the time where it became a plea bargain. 
I went with Kyle on a few of those follow-up interviews after months after the arrest. The one that sticks with me, and I, you got to remember this. I remember all of them. Do you want to talk about that? Well, over a year, I talked to everyone he ever knew. I talked to every girlfriend he ever had, every friend he ever had, everybody he ever grew up with. We talked to a lot of people, and we found, for starters, that while he was juvenile, he had actually been convicted of sodomy and rape on a young boy when he was 14 years old that was 10 years old and now lives in another state. This kid is is not a kid. He's 30 now, but he is messed up mentally and a lot of hate still. And he's been arrested a lot of times. And it all derives from what Doug had done to him. And that's the one that sticks with you the most because it was terrible. He ended up raping a girl when he was 16. And uh, when she was 14, I talked to her. And when I just brought it up to her, she starts bawling. And it it was Doug had. Doug had raped this female when she got out of the shower just at a friend's house opportunistic. I also found he had eight other victims that he had either raped, sodomized, sexually abused somehow. And uh, all but two were unreported. All but two. Wow. Now, forgive my ignorance, but if even two had been reported, why wasn't he already behind bars? He did time in the juvenile system because being a juvenile, they get a lot of leeway. And rightfully so. I'm not saying for crimes like that they should, but They get a lot more slack than adults do. He did do time in the state juvenile system for the one. And then he was on probation most of his juvenile life. He was in alternative schools because of all this. So I'm not saying he did just time, but he did do some time for him. When you're saying the two were reported, that's including the one involving Emma? That was the third one that was reported. So So he had, I guess, six unreported rapes that we found rape, sexual abuses that we found just from talking to different people. Pretty much every girlfriend he ever had, except for one, he had sexually abused along with their friends any time he had an opportunity, really. Good grief. And the the one that we talked to, so we go interview an ex-girlfriend. I asked her, do you want to know what Doug did? And her immediate response is, I probably already know. And, you know, that's chilling just in itself. And I asked her, well, what do you think happened? And she has no knowledge. All she knows is Doug's come up missing at this point because it's pretty early in the investigation. I talked to her. Her original statement was he probably stuck something in her butt and it wasn't his dick. Oh, my God. I know you also had a really interesting, I would consider rather chilling conversation with Doug's brother. I did. I, I talked to him during the time that I'm basically looking into Doug's past, trying to find out what type of person he is because really we're trying to find out whether he is or isn't mentally retarded, because we're not going to fight it if he actually is, then we're willing to accept that. So I go to his brother, and thinking his brother won't talk with me, because it's Doug's brother, and uh, one of the first things he tells me is, they're not going to like what I have to say, and I ask him who they are, and he tells me, Doug and his defense team aren't going to like anything I have to say, and I go, okay, well, let's start with growing up, and what do you think of Doug? And he says, Doug's a fucking asshole. He's treated me like shit my entire life. And I hope he gets life or death. I don't care. I just don't want to ever see him again. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And who's older in that, Doug? Or the- Doug is four or five years older, so he's a significant amount older. But he describes him to be a bully. He says he's picked on me my whole life. I couldn't have people over because he'd pick on them. And he just treats everybody like shit. I also ask him, what do you think of Doug's mental capacity and how was he in school, that sort of thing? And he basically says, I know his defense and it's bullshit. Doug is not retarded. He's a dickhead. 
And Dan, you had an interesting conversation with another relative of Doug's. Tell us about that. I had talked to actually Doug's nephew. So Doug's brother's son had a lot of interaction with Doug. And when I asked him, what's your opinion of Doug? He said, Doug has a black soul. You can look right into his eyes and he's got a black soul. Doug's statement and the evidence suggest he was waiting behind the door for Emma as she arrived home that night. He further admitted to hitting Emma in the head with a hammer, but declined to discuss any details of the sexual assault. He is now serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Small Town Dicks is produced by Zibby Allen and Yardley Smith for Paperclip Limited, with editing from Logan Heftel, Billy Florio, Yardley, and Zibby. Music for the show was composed by John Forrest. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you like to listen to your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Small Town Dicks. Also, visit our website, smalltowndicks.com, for more information and to leave questions and comments for the team. <laughs>